Hello and welcome to another episode of Fantastic Fights, the podcast about a middle-aged man playing adventure game books out loud on the internet. My name is Hieronymus J. Doom, and this episode we're looking at Skylord, the 33rd book in the Fighting Fantasy series released in 1988. It was written by Martin Allen, illustrated by Tim Sell, with cover art by Les Edwards. Before we get started, a very small update on Crown of Crimson, my forthcoming role-playing game about deranged cultists in a fantasy empire. I'm well into the final draft of the game, and all things being equal, it ought to be in the hands of my patrons by the end of March. If you'd like a copy, you can get one by going to patreon.com forward slash hjdoom and pledging as little as a single English pound to support my nonsense. Now on with the show. I know next to nothing about this book. I think I remember seeing it on the shelves at my local WH Smiths, but I was never even tempted to pick up a copy. I think, even as a child, I'd grasped that the science fiction books were generally of a more uneven quality, shall we say, than the fantasy entries. And it'll be really interesting to see if that youthful cynicism was justified. Knowing that this would be the last science fiction book in the original run doesn't do much to fill me with confidence, but who knows, perhaps the sci-fi series will go out on a high. The fact that Martin Allen doesn't appear to have contributed much else to the series, apart from co-writing one of the weird two-player books, is also a cause for trepidation. I can't find much about him on the internet, and it doesn't seem like he continued to work as a writer unless there are pseudonyms involved. The illustrator, Tim Sell, had contributed interior art to my beloved House of Hell, and cover artist Les Edwards had already put in a decent shift doing covers for fighting fantasy books, and he'll continue to do so as we work our way through the later series. His work here is interesting. It's an alien riding some kind of jet speeder against a vibrant yellow background, driving right at the uh, viewer with a laser beam coming out of the jet speeder. It's a very alien-looking alien, all tentacles and sideways eyes, and it's wearing a red flying scarf, which I quite like, but the lack of context in the background does make it seem a bit overwhelming taken as a whole. I think the best covers are the ones that hint at some kind of story beats, and this doesn't really do that for all that the execution is solid, as you'd expect from Les Edwards. In terms of systems, this is a science fiction book, and that means we get treated to an additional system for vehicular combat, on top of the normal rules for fighting. These are oddly referred to as combat weapon clashes, rather than vehicle combat, and it's fairly simple. You get a combat rating, which is essentially speed, a laser rating, which you use for fighting, and a shields rating, which is stamina. Highest combat rating goes first, with the enemy going first if it's a tie, and then the combatants take turns rolling 1d6, trying to get equal or less than their laser ratings. Each success knocks off two shields from the opponent. Lose all shields, and then it's game over. But shields do at least restore to their original level after every combat weapons clash. You can improve your combat rating by one if you win, and your enemy had a higher combat rating going into the Combat Weapon Clash. That's still a very silly name. Provisions are out, but provision tablets are in, and you get ten to kick off with. What exciting flavours will they be? Something for you all to look forward to there. You also get ten credits, which as usual could represent either vast wealth or absolute penury. 
and you've got a spaceship called the Star Spray, which sounds like an overpriced hair product, but you get a little diagram of the ship showing where all the lasers and shields are, so that's kind of nice. I've generated my character, and irritatingly, I don't get to give them a name, because we're told that the name is Skylord Jang Mistral. That's a black mark right there. That's not a remotely heroic name in my book. Now, you can use names and specific backgrounds to tell focused stories and suggest something of the game world, but I somehow doubt that Mr Mistral will have the sort of background that makes giving them a specific name worth the loss of immersion. My Mr Mistral has the following stats, a skill of 12, a stamina of 21, a luck of 10, and a combat rating of 4, and the ship, the Star Spray, has four lasers and a shields of 12. So with the 10 provision tablets and the 10 credits safely stored in my space backpack, let's dive into Skylord. So strap in because we have both a general introduction uh, titled About Your Star System and then a specific introduction to get through. There's quite a few pages of this, so uh, I hope you are sitting comfortably. You are Sky Lord Jang Mistral, elite solar trooper, special agent, and four-armed humanoid warrior from the 16th Aeon. So already we are really layering on the made-up words and made-up titles. What is the 16th Aeon? Will we find out? I kind of doubt it. Your home planet, Enselina, is just one of countless thousands of worlds inhabiting the famous holo Faluksh star chain, a dazzling spray of more than 100,000 live stars and innumerable planetoids, bordering the Berenice's supergalaxy. Some of these worlds, whether baking in the wild solar flares of nearby suns or wandering the bitterly cold galactic wastes are only lifeless husks. These are of little value to anyone except the ruthless galactic pirates and space desperados who use them for their evil purposes. Yet there exist many other worlds less daunting, with kinder climates and hospitable environments. On many of these, a wondrously diverse array of life forms have established themselves. Your own race, the Ensulvars, is a blood mix of two ancient nations, the Dawn Time Enzuls, the planet's original inhabitants, and the Ivars, a war clan from your Ajax Green. Blood mixed is not a phrase I would personally have chosen to describe the melding of two distinct species. It's got some unfortunate overtones. The Ivars invaded Enselina during the second Aeon, at first defeating and later mixing into the more populous Enzel race. The resulting nation of grey-eyed, four-armed humanoids retained the best traits of their ancestors, the culture and wisdom of the Enzols and the courage of the Ivars. As a result, they have been respected and admired by the inhabitants of many other planets in the star system, particularly the two-armed humanoids, and enjoyed a peaceful existence for many years. So, definite overtones of eugenics here, and the sort of anthropology that really should have gone terminally out of fashion sometime in the early 20th century, but didn't. 
During the twelfth aeon, however, a vast galactic war suddenly broke out. Two powerful races, the Felfps, the Fethsps, I should say. God, that is a terrible made-up word, the Fethsps. Is it Fethsps or Fethsps? There's no U, it's just F-E-T-H-P-S. I'm going with Fethsps. Uh, who are greedy two-headed reptiloids and deic, large purple molluscoids of unknown origins. Always deadly rivals, they had secretly amassed mighty armies and space fleets. Simultaneously, their armadas stormed across the galaxy at each other, destroying or conquering the planets in their path. The war raged for thousands of years, during which time Insulina was conquered by the Mercurial Deic. The Ensolvars were enslaved and forced to produce war machinery for their captors. Given that we're in the 16th Aeon, I'm not convinced that we really need this background of stuff that happened quite a number of thousand years ago. Only gradually, following wave upon wave of murderous assaults on each other, did the strength of the Deic and the Fethps begin to wane. In the 13th Aeon, the enslaved races of thousands of worlds were sparked to revolution. Led by Ares Skyfarer, a human from Arbitract, they rapidly ousted their cruel masters and, employing the weaponry they had previously been forced to build, finally drove both the Deic and the Fethps from the star system. The end of the war signalled the beginning of the long peace which has lasted to this day. Ari Skyfarer, the greatest galactic hero, was crowned the first Grand Emperor, and, in order to maintain a lasting peace, the Council of Star Kings was formed. I'm going to say that there is a definite, definite right-wing slant to the background of this novel. You can choose whatever government you like to emerge from the ashes of this thinly-veiled race war. But no, you had to go with a Grand Emperor, one single leader. The Council of Star Kings, whose members include the kings of many worlds, including your own King Vax, usually meet every 500 days at the Grand Emperor's Palace on Arbitract. There, the Council tries to resolve peacefully any disputes between its member planets, and reaffirms its intention to defend planets from alien threats, galactic pirates, and intergalactic invaders. The latter functions are performed by the Emperor's Imperial Guard, or by the heroic Solar Troopers, of whom you are a member. So, yeah, one strong leader with his own private battle force. Not problematic at all. On Enselina, the title of Lord is not a birthright, but must be earned in some way. Much the same way that uh, the title of Lord is no longer hereditary in the UK, but must be earned through heroic donations to whichever political party is currently in power. It was your exceptional skill and courage shown when fighting in the ranks of the Solar Troopers, which earned your first lordship title, that of a Knight of Enselina, when you were only 20 years old. Since that time, your fellow peers, the Lords of Enselina, have often employed you as a special agent, performing hazardous and extremely secret missions to ensure the security of Enselina and the friendly worlds. Because of your accomplishments, you have been honoured with further titles, the latest, that of Sky Baron, being awarded after capturing the murderous Olaf Tharkin and his band of solar cutthroats. 
But now you have been summoned to appear before King Varx and your fellow lords to be briefed on a new mission, the most perilous, most challenging, and most unusual adventure of your career. Failure will bring disaster for Enselina. Success will bring you a treasure beyond your wildest dreams. So that's the general background, which precedes the rules, and we now have the mission background that I've already been recording for about 15 minutes. Place bets now on whether the author will remember to include an extra set of arms in the main body of the text, or whether it'll turn out to be one of those details that's added just for the sake of adding detail that never becomes relevant again. The name Le Bastine, even if only whispered, would certainly cause the faces of the Ensilvar palace staff to flush with anger. From poor King Varx, however, it would bring an uncontrollable outburst of such ferocity that the employment of a large hypodermic tranquilizer might well be advisable, for his own well-being. Of course, it has not always been like this. In fact, there was a time when Le Bastine, the now infamous galactic renegade and scourge of Enselina, had enjoyed a much more friendly relationship with your king. How friendly, we would like to know. In those days, he had occupied a position of authority and prestige. As Vark's major domo, his responsibilities had included the employment and supervision of the king's entire household staff, a job which he handled with due skill and diligence for a number of years. But then he took up a new hobby, cybernetics and genetic engineering, and his attitude changed drastically. Men and their hobbies never ends well. You either end up trying to create a new hybrid robot master race, or you end up reading out 1980s adventure game books out loud to people you've never met. Neither of these are entirely productive uses of your time. In order to pursue his leisure time activity, Le Bastin had to build a laboratory and equip it with many varieties of cloning, fusing and transforming hardware, and then buy important scientific publications. Of course, all this required a large amount of money. After running up sizeable debts, Le Bastin approached King Varx and begged for an increase in his modest wage. Following years of faithful service, he considered that he had earned it. The artful Varx, however, steadfastly refused, claiming that in the interests of the national economy, virtually no one in Enselina had been allowed a pay rise for over 200 years. Ah, yes... Yes, to ensure growth and prosperity, we must keep the population poor. Great economics there, straight out of the Conservative Party playbook. To grant a raise to Le Bastine, he argued, could set a dangerous precedent which would undermine the entire economy to the mutual disbenefit of all. Ah, oh, stuff it. Classic top-of-the-heap mentality. I must have all of the money all of the time, but if any of these poverty-stricken underlings is given so much as a whisper of a raise, then the entire economic system will definitely collapse. This has got my back right up. Le Bastine, who believed that these were merely the words of a stingy ruler, was infuriated, as well he might be. The economy, as everyone knew, had never been in better shape. In retaliation, the crafty courtier devised a scheme whereby he could obtain the money he needed for his creditors, while simultaneously causing his tight-fisted monarch some inconvenience. 
the scheme went thus. On the pretext of maintaining exceptionally high standards of behaviour among the palace catering staff, Le Bastine began dismissing the stewards for trivial misdemeanours. On receiving their marching orders, these unfortunates were immediately escorted from the premises and informed that if they were ever to return, they would face a speedy execution. In their place, the wily Le Bastine substituted creations from his own laboratory. These obliged their master faithfully by investing their weekly wages with him. So he's going to conquer the world by growing the next generation of Starbucks barista in a lab. It's a novel approach, I'll grant him that. After his initial successes with the other stewards, Le Bastine set about dealing with the other palace staff with equal fervour. The fact that many of his creations resembled dismissed staff was no mere coincidence, and with a surprisingly short space of time, he was receiving pay packets from chefs, chauffeurs, guards, groundsmen, and even the king's personal advisers and henchmen, all without arousing the least suspicion. You see, if you attached machine learning or AI to such a project today, I bet you could get an enormous quantity of funding in venture capital. With his supplementary income thus assured, Le Bastine got himself released from debt. For a while, he contented himself with engineering whimsical creatures for his own amusement. The spider fly and the gigantic fanged armadillo-bodied rhinoceros in particular were sources of great satisfaction to him. Indeed, at that time, the chambers beneath the manor house fairly teemed with bizarre livestock. Eventually, however, Le Bastine grew dissatisfied. The ultimate, the most rewarding experience, he concluded, could be derived only from the creation of the perfect life form, whatever that was. He grew determined to find out, although accomplishing the task would consume a considerable amount of money and require the acquisition of some extremely sophisticated equipment indeed. I hope you're enjoying this because there's still another three pages left. Purchasing a brand new metamorphosal hydrolyzer required an enormous financial outlay, even more than his dishonest tactics had afforded him thus far. Another money-making scheme was required. Le Bastine ordered one of his henchmen to pilfer and then pawn a number of palace artworks. Several antique porcelain vases were the first to go, followed by a crystal statuette, the personal property of the king, and a cosmoscope entitled Birth of a Star. Since by now there were few reels left among the palace staff, Le Bastine believed that the thefts would go unnoticed, and they would have too if he had chosen someone other than his creation Ben Frumpet to carry out the crime. I feel as though the plot of this is already getting away from the author to a degree. We've started with galactic wars that lasted thousands of years, and we've now got petty larcenery described in ever-increasing detail. One day, when Ben was in a local pawnbroker's establishment, haggling over a suitable price for the stolen cosmoscope, in walks the real Ben Frumpet, his identical namesake. The real Frumpet suddenly twigged the situation, and after a brief protest, he stunned his facsimile and dragged it off to the local constabulary. Thus, Le Bastine's conniving schemes were finally exposed, his henchmen were weeded out, and the original staff reinstated. For his crimes, the king punished Le Bastine severely. After a not-too-lengthy trial, Varx sacked Le Bastine from his post, 
ordering his laboratory to be demolished and his manor house confiscated. The former major domo was to be thrown into the streets, but Le Bastien, seething with anger, had other ideas. Clearly, he would soon be forced to leave Encelina to continue his work, but first he planned a final mordant joke upon the king, now his sworn enemy. Disguising himself as a famous cosmetic surgeon, Le Bastien visited the king's wife, Broomhilda, offering her beautifying treatment free of charge. Naturally, Broomhilda accepted. Ah, yes, let's sprinkle a little misogyny in amongst the weird racial essentialism. Contrary to his promised beautification, however, the despicable mastermind played an awful prank upon her. While she was on the operating table, he carried out certain modifications to her, extending her nose by ten inches, enlarging her eyes to the size of small saucers and discolouring them one green, one red, and worst of all, grafting a large pineapple to her scalp, sadly not a process that could be reversed. This cruel act was discovered only when the bandages were removed a week later, and by then Le Bastine had fled the planet. So we're at the uh, J.H. Brennan level of humour. This feels like it's going to be a long recording on all sorts of levels. Despite the generous reward offered for his capture, Le Bastien has remained hidden for years. During the past week, however, a bounty hunter has landed, bringing startling news to Encelina. He claims to have tracked Le Bastien to Arok, a man-built fortress world orbiting the galactic rim. Arok was abandoned by its makers centuries ago, following a massive radiation spill. Since then, it has become the abode of dreadful galactic cutthroats and varieties of abhorrent creatures, as well as many eccentric recluses. The bounty hunter captured and interrogated a mutant, obtaining from it the following information. Deep within the vaults of Arok, Le Bastine has long been experimenting on the local livestock, breeding and refining their better traits until recently he developed the perfect life form he sought. Rumours say they are terrifying dog-headed super-warriors with brutal strength and electrifying speed, calling themselves Prefectas. Le Bastien is busily cloning an army of them, which he will unleash upon the galaxy. Particularly harsh treatment is planned for King Vax and the Ensilvars. Fortress Arok bristles with automatic missiles, lasers and pulsers, and is surrounded by energy shields and vacuum mines. At present, it is impregnable to invasion by a large force. But as the bounty hunter has proved, a solitary craft may be able to pass through the screens and land undetected. Once down, this lone invader would need to destroy the planet's defence centre, located beneath the Dome of Marvels, deep within the planet's interior. Only by this means would an invasion fleet be able to land safely. The task ahead is fraught with danger, and only Encelina's most skillful agent, you, will have any chance of succeeding. Knowing that failure may cost billions of lives, still you have accepted the mission. If you succeed, however, the fabulous man-built world will at last be contaminated and repopulated, and you will be crowned as its sovereign ruler. Because, of course, the only thing that people are motivated by is the desire to have power over other people. What else is there in life than the ability to kick downwards? 
Now the time has come for you to leave your home planet in Selena and travel to distant Arok in your starship. So, we finally made it after 25 minutes to the first paragraph. Lucky us. So, there's a picture facing the first paragraph of your spaceship. Looks pretty good. It's blasting off. It looks, yeah, sleek and kind of like a catamaran, but more spaceshipy. I like it. I feel as though the tone of this is absolutely all over the place, and I feel as though when people try and talk down to children, they often end up revealing a surprisingly large amount of their own psychology. In this, I think we've seen that uh, there's a degree of authoritarianism somewhere within the mind of the author that maybe he'd have been a bit cherry of sharing to such an open degree if he didn't think he was writing for idiot children. Not that children are all idiots by any stretch of the imagination. I'm merely saying that I think that's kind of how he seems to, based on this text, view children. After a short rest, you gather your equipment and board your starship the Star Spray, where you begin a quick pre-programmed countdown sequence. Ten. Nine. The energy banks hum. Eight. Seven. Six. Thrusters ignite your seat judders. Five. Four. Three. Pulses roar. A loudspeaker announces... Dimension hop imminent. Two, one, bang. Your home planet disappears from the vidi screen. The sky is black and starless. You have entered a warp lane. From this lane, you must steer the star spray into another dimension, one more suitable for rapid galactic travel to Arok. Your best opportunities are probably time-space travel in the fourth dimension or light-space travel in the sixth dimension. Each has advantages over the other, each has its dangers. And no, you can't know what either of those are. You must just decide whether you will time travel or light travel. I will light travel because, as has been amply demonstrated, once you start messing around with time, narrative just breaks down reliably. So yeah, we'll go light travel. I'm feeling particularly chatty on this episode, which is probably not a good thing given the size of this book. You manipulate the controls and enter the sixth dimension in a blaze of colour and sound. In light warp, the universe you know is folded upon itself in a complex colour pattern, so that any planet or star can be reached merely by entering the appropriate portion of the colour spectrum. It will take only a millionth of a second real time to reach Arok, but... In less than half this time, your spaceship's electrostatic shields blaze with the impact of incoming missiles. From a higher dimension, a huge red rocket scooter appears. Its rider, a scruffy black tendrilled creature, wears a scarlet choker, the telltale mark of the far bad redneck, a gang of galactic thrill-seekers from the 33rd plane. The redneck throttles towards you, making rude gestures and laughing maniacally. You must defend yourself against his lasers and explosive ram. Fair enough, that is the fellow, I believe, from the cover. There is an internal picture of him as well, which is uh, significantly more cartoonish, and I think in keeping with the tone of this book, and kind of looks like an octopus that's got accidentally wedged in a hedge strimmer. But anyway, we've got a fight. 
the far bad redneck has a rating of four which means it'll be going first a lasers of five and a shields of eight so it could easily be that i die immediately in this little escapade so uh with a certain degree of disquiet i'm gonna roll some dice by the very skin of my teeth i managed to defeat far bad redneck uh the uh attacker reduced me to two shields but they have now happily regenerated back to their normal level of 12 so that's good you can afford to make the combat a little bit more difficult actually it turns out with the combat weapon clashes because you know that the uh the shields will be regenerating after every every combat so there's an interesting little design feature there that i dare say i'll mention at the end the redneck slams into your starship's tail which luckily is still protected by shields prudently you decide to exit light warp prematurely to examine the damage before continuing back in real space the damage appears to be slight a few smouldering pods are quickly extinguished and a blood streak on the retro port is easily removed this time you decide to continue in the less dangerous fourth dimensional time warp However, before you can adjust your controls, you notice ahead of you a monstrous black hulk moving silently across the stars. Do you wish to enter the time warp or examine the mysterious shape ahead? Uh, we've got a mission to do. Let's not take this particular bait um, and let's just time warp out of here. I will say, for all that I'm pretty down on this from the outset, I am enjoying the sheer madness of the uh, metaphysical causality and physical laws governing it that is exactly my kind of ridiculously over-the-top nonsense you manipulate your ship's controls and enter the fourth dimension outside colors swirl and clash as you time warp towards arok it will take about six minutes real time to reach the planet after two minutes however you notice a fuzzy purple blotch spreading over your starboard thruster it is some kind of space weed which is growing rapidly in the fertile time warp energy field. If it is allowed to spread further, it may choke the thruster and destroy your spacecraft. On the other hand, a premature jump into real space, which would enable you to cut the fungus off, could also prove perilous. Will you ignore the fungus and continue towards Arok or exit the time-space warp in order to leave the ship and cut the growth away? Well, safety first, let's cut the old growth away. Nothing good comes of leaving a growth. You re-enter real space and examine your spaceship. The fungus has grown to enormous size, covering most of the starboard thruster and part of the fuselage. It has also changed to a light blue colour. You may decide to leave the ship and cut it off, or search for a planet, and passing through its atmosphere, burn it off. Hints of Blake 7 in this. The thing that eventually does for the Liberator is a weird space fungus so yeah quite like that little nod to uh, one of my very favorite science fiction shows i guess we'll try and burn it off rather than cutting it off cutting it off sounds like hard work and i already feel quite tired so uh yeah burn it off that's the only sensible answer there is an uncharted planet on your scan scope at a distance of 26 million miles setting your controls for cruise speed it will take you about five hours to reach it on the way, you find yourself suddenly confronted by a broad, silver, stingray-shaped ship which has apparently just materialised from another dimension. It is the kind of ship often used by the Pelhon Rangers, 
a band of misguided galactic vigilantes. You must defend yourself against this attack. Very much down on vigilantism. Another check in the authoritarian checklist. The Pelon Rangers have a rating of 5, a lasers of 5, and a shields of 8. So, once again, I'm going to roll some dice. I have been destroyed by the Pelhon Rangers, so that's sad. But obviously it's far too soon for me to consider throwing in the towel. So we'll invoke the Sausagey Finger Bookmark rule at a ridiculously early stage, and we will continue as if we had defeated them. And it's actually quite handy that the shields regenerate, because it means that I don't have to try and work out what's a sensible amount of stamina to give myself. So, uh, yeah. We will just carry on as if we had defeated the Pelon Rangers. It was close though. I very, very nearly won that. The enemy ship explodes in a spectacular ball of heat and light. You manoeuvre the star spray through the debris, probing for survivors and spoils. One item which immediately attracts your attention is a droid, a spindly chrome robot of dwarfish proportions. Its three faces have frozen in terror, and it clutches frantically to a buckled wing slat. Ah, yes. Vitally important that if we create robot life, it has the ability to feel fear. That's a thing I'd hate for anyone to miss out on. A droid may be a useful acquisition for your mission. You pick it up in a mechanical grabber and pop it into your ship's hold. You also spot a curious device of iron tubes, glass rods and slate cubes. Although you are unaware of its function, it looks very high-tech, so you scoop it up. Fair enough, can't argue with that. So we've got a droid, droid capable of fearing death, and some tubes. Onwards. Presently you close upon the planet, a majestic world of reds and greens patched with swirling white clouds. Grazing the atmosphere, your craft begins to heat up. It is not long before the space we burnt to a fine ash produces a trailing, fiery wake behind the star spray. But when you turn away from the planet towards space, your hull is suddenly pierced by a lightning bolt, surging from a cloud below. The cabin pressure drops rapidly as you fight to maintain control. A fire breaks out in the aft storage pod. Booster power fails and your ship plunges towards a ridge of scarlet hills. A crash landing is imminent. Switching to a manual glide, you steer yourself between two rocky pinnacles leading into a long, narrow valley. Looming ahead is a dark lake surrounded by trees and a bank of grey shingles. Will you try to land on the lake or on the bank of shingles? I feel as though lake makes more sense, but my morbid fear of drowning is such that I'm actually going to go for the shingles instead. With a wrenching screech and a splitting of stones, the star spray falls heavily on the shingles. Its nose cone digs deep into the bank, the ship cartwheels and, with a smack, comes to rest beside a large tree. Deduct four points from your stamina. Stamina now... 17. Even worse is to come. You stagger from the escape hatch only just in time as the tree, angered by the appearance of your craft, seizes it with an enormous gnarled root and hurls it far out into the lake. It seems your adventure has already ended in disaster. I feel like it started in disaster, never mind ending that way. For a while you sit disconsolately upon the bank pondering your fate. Then, unexpectedly, 
you observe wading from the lake the three-faced droid you had scooped up earlier. It is carrying the high-tech device you could not make sense of. The droid passes into some trees, the rim of a broad forest, and is lost to view. You may wish to follow the droid or swim out to your ship to salvage some of its contents, or you may decide to head off up the Vale, hoping to find a village and obtain help. I'm going to follow that droid. Yeah, follow that droid sounds like an unmade carry-on film. Kind of amazed that they never made a science fiction carry-on film, now I think about it. For most of the day, you track the droid through the woodlands, across tiny brooks and along rocky gullies. Quite obviously, he is familiar with the region. Curiously, although he is aware of your presence, his three faces giving him all-round vision, he makes no attempt to conceal himself. But when dusk approaches, the droid leaves the forest and vanishes behind a bluff of blue moonstone. When you follow, you cannot see him. Your only clue is a faint trail which forks left towards a spiny ridge and right towards a steep incline. Will you follow the left path or the right path or continue trailing the base of the bluff? Um, hmm. There's no real clue here, is there? It's just literally pick a direction. Well, there's an option to go left. It's the first one we've got. We're going to go left. Good old left. You follow the trail over a ridge and on for perhaps a quarter of a mile. Now ahead you can see the droid again. He has been waylaid by a green mutant with arms extending from his cheeks and thighs. You decide to attack it and rescue the droid. So good old left, doing me a solid there. The green mutant has a skill of seven and a stamina of six. At last, a fight I stand a pretty good chance of winning. I'm going to beat up this extravagantly armed mutant by rolling some dice. I have defeated the mutant without taking a single point of damage. The droid is grateful for your protection, but I know that you are also in need of aid. It buzzes. Follow me then, for I return to my master in the Jedberg Caves. He may be able to assist you. Having no better plan, you follow the droid for many hours. Just before dawn, you espy before you a huge wall of rounded boulders. Beneath the wall are hundreds of cave openings. The droid selects one of these and leads you inside. Can't fault this for stuff happening. The droid's master is Krill Babbitt, a humanoid with tanned grey skin and a large round nose supporting a drooping moustache. He looks like a walrus. Still, he is a pleasant enough sort. Yes, I am the master of this droid, these caves, he snorts, and once this entire planet. That was until Skein, a war sprite from Delphon, arrived in a huge skyship several years ago. Have you already encountered Shane the Stelfon Sprite? I have not. Krill continues. Shane landed her ship on Lake Droog, where it still resides. She brought an army of mutants with her which have killed or enslaved many of my people. Still more have been transmuted into evil creatures by a complex biomechanical process. Those of us who remain fled to the secret caves. We have been powerless to stop her, until now, that is. Krill reaches for the high-tech curio of rods, tubes and cubes, which the droid had brought back to the cave. Shane's main power, of course, is her mighty spaceship fortress from which she launches her assaults. But this device, an inferometer, will temporarily immobilise it and allow us to attack. My droid was bringing it to this planet when he was attacked by Pelhon Rangers. He tells me that you rescued him, and I am indeed grateful. 
So, what do you desire? I may be able to help. You tell Krill about your mission and that you require a spacecraft to reach Arok. That is easy. A backwards time loop with half a twist should do the trick. You shall get your own spaceship back. The plotting of this is absolutely bonkers. He disappears into a nearby apartment for a few minutes. Roll one die. So, uh, on a one to two, something happens. Probably something bad. Otherwise, something else happens. Probably something okay. I roll a one. Of course I do. Suddenly, there is a loud bang and a puff of smoke. Ah! screams Krill. Something's gone wrong! He returns to you with his clothes singed and his moustache still smouldering. I'm afraid my plan misfired, he reports. Your ship has been destroyed. Alas, there are no other spaceships apart from the Shanes. To fly that, you would need a Delphorn flight manual and hundreds of years of experience as a star battleship's apprentice. Neither of these is available to you. Stranded, your adventure is over. So, not even a test your luck. That was a perfect opportunity to use an existing mechanic, that of testing your luck, and the author decided in their infinite wisdom that actually just having a one in three chance of ending the adventure there was the sensible option. Straightforward design lesson, never introduce a new system if an existing system will work just as well. Basic design principle. Um, well, I've never done this before, but I am going to go for a second sausage finger bookmark and much like this weird moustached guy, I'm going to rewind time and pretend that I actually succeeded in this live or die role. The only reason I'm doing it is because I feel bad making everyone sit through that interminable preamble without also delivering a decent chunk of actual adventure as a reward. So, uh, yeah, more Skylord. Hooray on all levels. Krill returns. Follow me. Your spacecraft is at the cave's entrance. The sight of your ship looking as good as new delights you. Krill chuckles. <laughs> well, I put it through a time loop so that it never crashed. In fact, it was never even struck by a lightning bolt. Now, perhaps you will do one courtesy before you leave. He explains that his people plan to attack the Delphon craft in the evening and that you could help them greatly. Why didn't he just put the original attack? through the time travel thing. Why didn't he just do that? Time travel makes everything make no sense the second it's introduced. He tells you, The inferometer will immobilise their ship for only a short time. If we do not destroy them quickly, then they will try and take off in order to bring all their guns to bear on us. If this happens, we would need you or someone like you to make an attack on them in your spacecraft and force them down again. You agree, and Krill gives you an ear twinge, a small conical device which clips onto your earlobe. Wait here in your spacecraft and attack when I give the appropriate signal. This is absolute gibberish. You rest in your spaceship until evening, while Krill amasses his force, several hundred strong and equipped with a variety of weapons including lasers, pulsers, blasters, blazers, flame lances and vacuum grenades. Under colourful banners, they march across the plains and over a roll of hills towards the enemy ship on Lake Droog. Several hours later, the sky in that direction flashes with orange and red. The attack has begun. Eventually, your ear twinge throbs to the sound of Krill's voice. 
They're taking off now! Attack! Simultaneously, you see rising above the hills a monstrous crystalline spaceship bristling with laser cannons. You take off and swoop into range. The Delphon battleship has a rating of five, a lasers of five, and a shield of eight, because heaven forfend, we should ever have the advantage in any kind of ship-to-ship combat. So, with a curious sinking feeling, I'm going to roll some dice. I succeeded in defeating the Delphon battleship. My shields were reduced to four, but have now obviously regenerated. The Delphon ship wobbles and jerks, then explodes above the lake. Through the ear twinge, you hear Quill exclaim delightedly, Well done, you have destroyed the evil Shane in her ship. We wish you good fortune in your journey ahead. Farewell. You perform an elaborate victory roll before rocketing back into space. But immediately you pick up a weak distress signal on your radio from some distance ahead. Will you go to help or enter a light warp to continue to Arok? Oh, let's just continue to Arok. Maybe, maybe we'll get there and, like, the adventure proper can begin. Unfortunately, before you reach Arok, your communicator crackles with the voice of your leader, King Vox. A slight detour, I'm afraid, he says. Another urgent matter is before us. Within your vicinity is a starfire valiog. You must destroy it before its sun homes. That is all. Starfire valiogs are, you recall, elusive fighting ships from the 57th dimension. They are enormous, immensely powerful, almost invincible. A fearsome armada in one ship. Their purpose is to wage destructive war in the higher planes. They rarely enter the lower dimensions, but when they do, their sole purpose is to sun home. In order to drive their massive engines, refurbish draining force shields and restock with plasma bolts, Valiugs plunder enormous quantities of energy from stars, often sucking them dry and leaving barren husks or empty space behind. I do like this kind of absolutely demented, over-the-top science fiction nonsense. It reminds me of E. Doc Smith, a guy who is, much like the author of this, in many ways a terrible writer, but one determined to ensure that no superlative, insane kind of space combat goes unexplored. So this aspect of it I am genuinely liking. It's just unfortunate that everything else about it is so terrible. With a judder, you re-enter real space in the Calibroi solar system, a subsystem of 15 planets inhabited by millions of life forms. Not far away resides the heart of the system, the ruby-red dwarf star Calibro. But now the sun appears pale and faltering. The Valiug ship is already plundering its energy. Within a few moments, you locate the ship, a long, thin vessel just to the right of the sun. Uh... Yep, that's a useful navigational description. Where's the ship? See that sun? Yeah, just to the right of that. Oh, great, thanks. It's like someone asking you for directions to the nearest post office and you saying, yeah, yeah, it's just to the left of Europe. There is a picture of the Valiug spaceship. It looks kind of a bit like a kind of Klingon warbird, only much, much thinner. I quite like it. It's fine. Do you want to switch your craft to a computer-controlled attack run? Activate original anti-detector shields, switch off thrusters and glide into attack range, or attempt a computer scan of the enemy? 
So those are all quite fun sounding approaches. I like the idea of switching off thrusters and gliding into attack range, hoping that I won't be detected. That feels like an actual kind of military stratagem. So that's what we'll go for. From the Valiug's portals, a cluster of vacuum bomb torpedoes are launched. Test your luck. I am lucky. Luck now down to nine. A mighty roar just behind the star spray buffets you towards the Valiug mothership. Reduce your shields by one permanently and deduct one from your stamina. So stamina now 16, shields reduced to 11. This is going so well. Now, will you try your anti-detector defences or select the image intensifier scan scope or risk activating the atomic polarizer? These, I'm starting to feel as though I'm losing my grip on what words actually mean. This barrage of absolute gibberish being presented to me as if it was the most normal thing in the, the world, I'm really starting to struggle. We'll go with the atomic polarizer because that sounds awesome. The polarizer malfunctions. An ominous burst of red light streams from the device and runs through your entire craft. Your adventure is over as you receive an instantaneous lethal radiation dose. Well, there we go. That's Skylord, everyone. Hope you had fun. <laughs> I really can't face going through any more of that right now. So, on the third death of the run, uh, we will we'll call it a day there. I'm going to go away and spend what I imagine will be a baffling couple of days delving into the structure and systems of Skylord in more detail. Really, really interested to see how that pans out. Um, but yeah, for you, I'll be back in just a couple of seconds with my traditional closing remarks. Tatty bye! Well, I certainly feel like I've been on a journey. I'm guessing the author didn't intend for me to feel that that journey was the one the protagonist makes in Heart of Darkness, but here we are. Can't always get what you want. Is Skylord a good adventure game book? No! No. No. It's fairly easy to see why this was the final nail in the coffin of science fiction fighting fantasy books. A bewildering and thoroughly random mess of a tale, which combines bargain basement humour with some of the most incoherent space opera I've ever witnessed, and a difficulty level that is inconsistent to the point where it feels as though it must have been a deliberate choice, designed solely to annoy any potential players. Let's talk about the plot first, such as it is. One of the most frustrating mistakes that comes up again and again in game books is the idea that writing in this medium means you don't need to give your story a defined beginning, middle and end, and instead you just provide all the middle you can eat. I'm not saying that every game book should cling to the three-act structure, but the story should ideally have some sense of escalation. If you're going to mess with that formula, then I think you need to be doing some kind of formal innovation to justify it. Robot Commando, for example, allows areas to be tackled in any order, and that trades a strong narrative for a greater sense of player urgency, which is fine. 
To be strictly fair to Skylord, there is a very mild sense of increased tension as you approach the end, but it lacks cohesion and the most theoretically exciting bits of the entire story, an involved duel with another spaceship, comes right in the middle of all the middle that's been generally presented. And that bit also turns out to be rubbish for a bunch of different reasons, but it should still probably have come at the end as the capstone of the adventure rather than the very erratic climax that we're actually presented with. Because in Skylord you're simply bounced from one event to the next with very little thought given to how they might connect thematically or narratively. Planets and space stations appear and you do stuff on them but it's hard to feel invested because so little thought has gone into their presentation. Some of the discrete sections are somewhat interesting. It's not a dead loss across the board. There's a space station which has been overrun by orange jelly things that is arguably the strongest single section of the narrative, but it's still presented in such a haphazard and random fashion that the good core idea gets buried under a welter of decisions that feel random and tonally so inconsistent. You meet a man who's entirely sanguine about being devoured by a jelly monster, thus kind of sucking a lot of the threat out of the jelly monsters. There's a baffling and lengthy sequence of rooms where you get to take two items from each room from a biggish list. And at the end of the space station, you get to face off with one final jelly monster by throwing all the objects that you've scavenged at it until you defeat it if you've thrown enough items. The text never really specifies what that means, but I assume the jelly monster devours the objects you're chucking at it until it eventually gets so full of random junk that it bursts. And there is a good idea in there, but the refusal to give you any kind of hint to what kind of stuff you should be prioritising from the entirely random lists that confront you with every successive room, it just makes the whole thing frustrating. At one point you get rescued from a swamp by a guy in a ship. You then go into the cargo deck where you fight a two-headed robot laser. Then you return to the flight deck to discover that the man who rescued you has died, apparently of old age and excitement. It's structured like the kind of dream you might have after binge-watching a Star Trek box set with a kilogram block of cheese. Even the best bits are hampered by a style that substitutes strange word clusters for proper world-building, and one in which the correct decision is almost never flagged in the text. Sometimes there are twists, at least one lifted from Blake 7, but a twist only works if you've established some kind of ground rules that the audience can then buy into. You can't subvert expectations if the audience is expecting abject lunacy. Even the biggest surprise here is likely to elicit little more than a shrug from the reader. One of the twists that the villain has been imprisoned by the very master race he sought to create could have evoked the Daleks turning on their creator Davros in Genesis of the Daleks, but because everything here is played for witless chuckles, it stands zero chance of landing as an impactful plot beat. 
it doesn't help that the so-called master race are barely better at fighting than the average fighting fantasy goblin. You keep getting told how dangerous they are, and you keep kicking them to death with remarkable ease. Is that in and of itself intended to be some kind of joke? It's not entirely clear. I talk a lot about the arbitrary nature of game books and how you have to throw in the odd surprise to keep a sense of jeopardy, and this is a great example of going too far towards the random end of that decision spectrum. What happens when you do that is that eventually any semblance of cause and effect breaks down because so few events are tied logically to your decisions and you end up barely engaged in the story because you're just skimming the paragraph, picking an option at random and then moving on to the next one. The choices that you're presented with are frequently maddening. Either there's a series of choices which are completely random, the usual go left, right, up or down with no contextual hints, or there's choices that feel as though they are giving you a genuine sense of agency, except without any context which would help you to choose between them. And a good example of that is the first decision you're asked to make, where you're told you can either go via space dimension travel or time dimension travel, and the book helpfully goes, both of these have their dangers, and you aren't given the information that would enable you to even feel as though you're being properly involved in the decision. And of course, the wrong choice will frequently kill you. And sometimes, even when the text seems to be hinting that there might be an actual sensible option that you should take, that'll just kill you as well. So dive between the swamp in one section and what an idiot, that's the last thing you should have done, you're immediately dead. Except that a couple of paragraphs later, you need to dive or you'll be dead. And you feel like some kind of poor naive idiot for assuming that you could potentially learn from your mistakes. Did you look at the plaque, the secret death plaque? The plaque of secret death. What an idiot you are you're dead. And so you're left flailing around at random, and that compounded with the bizarre writing and the surreal situations, it just kills any sense of immersion. I cannot stress enough how much this book somehow assumes you're going to be familiar with the intricacies of the completely insane world that it's painting. It's like a Kafka or a Flann O'Brien story. You're constantly grappling with the very notion of reality itself. There's no way of determining which weirdly named items might be useful. Some of them are, some of them aren't, some of them are traps. And there's no clue because clues would require a moment's actual thought. And that's not how this book rolls. And there's an interesting feature, which is that there's such a profusion of invented technological terminology that at times it starts to feel as though language itself is breaking down. As you progress through the story, it takes on the mood of a Clockwork Orange or a Lewis Carroll poem, where meaning is entirely contextual rather than conveyed by the words themselves. You simply have to look and go, oh yeah, that's probably a verb. That's definitely a noun. What it signifies, who knows, but at least I know what part of speech it is. There's an element of satire here as well, albeit satire aimed at the very lowest common denominator. And it's hard to say whether the surreal 
and baffling array of technology and the bizarre situations are intended to be part of that joke. Uh, if they are, we think it's a joke that falls flat. It's frequently just stuff happening. The metaphysics and the physics are total nonsense of the most extreme kind. Between the dozens of dimensions, random localised time travel and pseudo-magical healing through mathematical formula, there's a sense that you're in a universe that's on the edge of complete ontological breakdown. And that, in and of itself, is intriguing and could have been a really fascinating and experimental way of approaching the format. But because so many of the elements of this book are so badly handled, even that potential upside ends up being just another problem. And it is a shame because there are hints here of the kind of stupid space opera that I genuinely very much enjoy. I'm a big fan of the old Flash Gordon serials from, from the 1930s with Buster Crabbe, and I love Edgar Rice Burroughs' Barsoom stories, which are flim-flam of the highest order, and this could have been a campy take on that kind of over-the-top early space opera and planetary romance, but it never settles on what it wants the tone to be. There is a silliness, but I don't think there's any real sense of fun. One thing I note about both Flash Gordon and the Barsoom books is that they both have protagonists who are outsiders in the fantastical worlds in which they adventure, whereas our protagonist, the unfortunate Mr Mistral, is very much an insider in that culture. The use of a human, or more or less human in the case of John Carter, viewpoint character, is a tried and tested way of helping people to decode strange and alien landscapes. Even in Star Wars, which is set in a completely different galaxy, Luke Skywalker has led a very sheltered life. He's a poor farm boy with little knowledge of the wider world, and so he's able to be a viewpoint character because he knows scarcely more about what's going on than we do. Here you are an integral part of the madness. You're a four-armed alien noble thing, and the text regularly makes you feel stupid for not knowing how the fictional universe operates. And despite the chummy, matey, deliberately daft tone, the book feels like a slog because nothing makes any sense. It's exhausting to be bombarded so relentlessly with gibberish. There's a minor Hitchcock film called Spellbound, which features a dream sequence designed by Salvador Dali. It's very visually striking, it's very surreal, and it has tremendous impact because it comes as a contrast to the otherwise very staid, very British, very mannered thriller that it's a part of. If the whole film had been like that, then the single sequence would never have had any kind of impact, and you would notice instead how very cheaply it's being staged. It shouldn't be possible for a book to feel cheaply staged, but Skylord somehow manages it. Now, some have suggested that this is the worst written fighting fantasy game book ever, but honestly, I will still put this a couple of notches above Chasms of Malice. Not big notches, little tiny notches, but it's still above Chasms of Malice because there is some fun to be had somewhere amid the soup of randomness, and it doesn't have the 
flat affect the blighted chasms of malice whereby it had the emotional range of a VAT receipt. This has the tone of a long rambling anecdote being told to you by a drunk who corners you in a bar and tries to explain how they once built a car out of shoes. And whereas chasms of malice would take a single idea that wasn't particularly good in the first place and then just do it over and over again as a way of providing you with content there are at least some pretty distinctive encounters in Skylord. I mentioned the jelly section earlier, which almost manages to be straightforwardly enjoyable despite the best efforts of the author to sabotage his own work. There's another fun set piece later in the book where you're being strangled and you have a limited supply of oxygen with which to resolve the fight. And the fight is done wholly with making different choices as you struggle against your alien attacker with your oxygen depleting. Again, it's not perfect as the correct decisions. There's no real rhyme or reason to them. But the idea of grappling in a panic as you start to suffocate, that's a real belter. And it's a good example of a bespoke mechanic adding something to the table. Of course, the oxygen is referred to as oxygen supply points because he cannot help himself. He has to give things stupid clunky names. But the core idea is really sound. And it's interesting because you could have run the same encounter using stamina. But here, the use of a one-time resource really ties into the mechanics of the situation and focuses the mind on what's actually happening. And you can run that oxygen down to almost zero to create tension in a way that you can't with stamina because you just don't know how much stamina the player will have going into that section. And of everything in the book, this is the thing that I will definitely be stealing and repurposing for my own nefarious ends. And I cannot be 100% down on any book that has an idea I think is good enough to nick. Calling them oxygen supply points irritates me on an irrational level. It's the same with the combat weapon clashes. I could see it working if you were dealing with an aqualung or similar, but the endless clunky nomenclature winds me up out of all proportion it shouldn't really matter but i think mechanics can do subtle world building if you name and describe them correctly in the game i'm currently working on i've deliberately chosen names for the attributes that evoke the language of religion because it's a game about strange religions and i want that theme to be present from the moment you start creating a character. Probably no one cares about this as much as I do, but choosing apposite words shows that you're focused on the world that you're creating, and Skylord's approach just feels consistently muddied and often at odds with the tone it's trying to strike. And that's just a lack of care and attention. The combat weapon clash rules do bear a little bit of closer examination, I don't actually think they're too bad as additional combat rules go, although I don't think they're quite good enough to absolutely justify their presence. I set a very high bar for introducing new persistent mechanics, especially when they're doubling up on an existing system. So a good example of when I think introducing a new system is fine would be fear mechanics that were used in House of Hell and Beneath Nightmare Castle. They were very appropriate to the story that was being told, and they weren't really treading on the toes of 
anything else. I would much rather, I think, here have seen some imaginative spot rules for the normal combat system to reflect the different ways you might be fighting because there are no spot combat rules anywhere in this book. So there was clearly scope within an existing design space to do interesting things. You didn't have to create a whole new system. However, that said, the system does have its virtues. With three variables, you've got quite a lot of scope for variation. I like that you can have a fast, weak enemy, which will net you a point of combat rating when you defeat it. And then you can have a badly armed but tough enemy, and that will provide a very different challenge to a well-armed but flimsy enemy. I like the regenerating shields because they make combat much easier to balance. Fights in game books are one of the hardest things. I think if we were all designing game books from scratch, we maybe wouldn't include combat systems as often as they generally show up because they are an absolute nightmare to balance. I spent a long time on my game books, especially my second one, trying to make sure the fights were challenging but beatable, or if they were really hard, they would be beatable if you'd made a bunch of good decisions earlier in the game. You need to kind of take account of how strong the player might be when they come into the encounter and balance appropriately. Regenerating the health every time creates a natural balance within each fight because you know when you're putting a fight down you go oh right they're going to have 12 shields I need to balance for a character who's got 12 shields and that creates natural balance within each fight but as with all design decisions it comes at a cost which is you lose the dynamic between fights and you lose that gradually increasing sense of peril that comes from the slow whittling away of stamina across an adventure, which is, I think, some of the most excited I've felt in adventure game books is when I'm low on stamina and I know that the next big fight could mean the end and then a fight that's just perfectly judged shows up and I think, I should make it through this. But if I do, it'll probably be by the skin of my teeth. And that's a a hell of a thing to take away. But it does allow you to, in theory, to create nicely balanced little encounters. I think combat rating should probably have had more of an impact than just determining who goes first in order to justify an additional stat. It's a feature of gaming of this period to be obsessed with initiative, despite it having a relatively minor impact on how many fights play out. If you want to make going first important, I think you want a less attritional system of combat than the one presented here. You want there to be a significant advantage to going first. In general, in gaming, I'm in favour of cutting out initiative rules altogether and using the situation to determine who goes first. That gives you an opportunity to make that part of the story and it doesn't cost you much in terms of time or words. I think the combat weapon clash rules also highlight again just how good the core fighting fantasy system is because like a lot of systems that I've criticised, combat weapon clashes frequently throw up combat rounds where nothing is achieved, which is always frustrating. And that's something that happens much less frequently in the core combat rules. I do like making the rolls a single d6 under your lasers rather than 
it being 2d6, it gives this combat system its own identity and separates it a bit more from the main combat rules. I still recommend not bothering to write an entire separate combat system, but if you do, I think anything that helps them stand out is good, provided you're not adding complexity for its own sake. What's maddening is how difficult most of the combat weapon clashes are, betraying a complete lack of understanding of even the incredibly simple probabilities involved. It's especially galling when most of the traditional fights are risibly easy. It's another of my perennial bugbears, people who can't be bothered to do even the back of a napkin kind of maths necessary to understand the system that they themselves have designed. If you can't do the maths, then at least just run a few sample combats to get a sense of how the dice might fall out. As well as messing with the core rules, there's three bespoke systems, you might even call them mini-games within the text. These are a properly weird bunch. Let's, let's detail them quickly. The first one is a rewrite of the floor puzzle from obscure 1980s British TV show The Adventure Game. If you haven't seen that show, then I do recommend seeking out like one episode on YouTube because it's essentially role-playing meets the Crystal Maze with a budget that would barely cover a meal for two at a chain restaurant. It's, I guess, like watching someone do an incredibly low-rent escape room. It's a fascinating cultural archetype, and it was a big influence on the Crystal Maze, but trying to rework a colour and shape matching task, which plays out on a grid, using one diagram and the power of the written word is a genuinely terrible idea. Trying to map the changing colours onto the diagram in the front of the book, which, like all diagrams, doesn't have the ability to change colours, is an exercise in frustration. It's objectively an awful idea. The only idea that could possibly be worse would be to include a board game in the text, and lo and behold, this is what the author does towards the end. There's a game board, helpfully shown on the inside cover, which consists of concentric rings with you at the centre and monsters placed at three positions in the outermost ring. Each phase of the game involves moving one or other ring and checking whether game pieces have a line of sight to attack. If you've spotted that a diagram can't actually move any more than it can change colour, then congratulations, you are smarter than the author. I can only assume that he intends for you to make your own copy of the board which can actually move, or that you should draw out each board state on a piece of paper for every single move. Thankfully, there is an item which renders the entire thing moot by telling you exactly what moves to make, but it still stands as, I think, the single stupidest additional system I have ever witnessed in a game book. I feel like the author might have been inspired by the genuinely kind of clever tank battle bit in Space Assassin, but he might as well be trying to model a game of Kaplunk in this iteration. It's such an overwhelmingly and obviously bad idea that I'm just curious as to how it made it through even a cursory editing process. I feel like someone somewhere along the line must have sat down with this minigame and gone, yeah, this seems fine. 
There's also space combat with big ships where you get given your pitch, roll and yaw. And then you get given your opponent's pitch, roll and yaw. Which means that you can tell which way both vessels are pointing in space relative to a fixed point. You are not, obviously, provided with any information about where your two ships are in relation to each other. So it's kind of hard to see how this directional information could be of any use. Knowing my ship is pointing up relative to a fixed point, that's a good thing if I know the other ship is above me. But if the other ship is below me relative to that same fixed point, then I'm pointing in entirely the wrong direction. You're essentially just picking flight plans at random as you get bounced between paragraphs of meaningless velocity specifications. I think the way through it might be to simply try and get your pitch roll and yaw higher than your opponent's pitch roll and yaw, but that could be just clutching at straws, and to be honest, that would be immensely stupid as well. There's a bit of me that wonders whether I'm an idiot who just can't visualise two objects moving in three-dimensional space based on a series of three numbers, but then I remember that this book is pitched at the level of a five-year-old for the most part. Even if I am being dense, I don't think the target audience would be ever be likely to get it. They're not going to be sitting there and thinking, ah oh, yes, thanks to these coordinates, I can place these two vessels absolutely perfectly on my mental map of the cosmos. It's a shame, because the detailed ship battle could be really, really cool if it provided you with a single piece of useful information at any point during the extensive ship-to-ship -ship combat. It's criminally underbaked, which is a shame because it, it just could have been awesome. Well, I think that's more or less everything that needs saying about this book. Uh, I should mention the artwork is fine. It's cartoonish, which definitely marries well with the text. Don't think it's especially memorable, but he's clearly doing his best to fill the brief, which is what you want from your illustrator. His work on House of Hell was rather better, but then everything about House of Hell was rather better, so that tracks. This is a bad book, done badly by someone who seems far too enamoured of hierarchical power structures. Now, personally, I come out in hives at the thought of having actual power over another human being, and I harbour the deepest distrust for those who seem to actively crave the opportunity to tell other people what to do. So... That was always going to get my hackles up anyway, but I do think it's worth flagging. Before we allow Skylord to lapse back into well-deserved obscurity, I think it's worth taking a moment to think about the sorry tale of science fiction in the fighting fantasy canon. There are only six proper spaceships and lasers fighting fantasy books, and a glance across the titles reveals a litany of failure for the most part. I think if Steve Jackson couldn't manage to turn in a decent effort with Starship Traveller, then future attempts were always going to struggle. Starship Traveller was a decent idea, just very badly underwritten, and it probably could have been quite enjoyable if it had been given a lot more time and care in the gestation period. That was followed by Space Assassin, possibly even madder and less well-conceptualised story than this. That's the one that has the entire planet hidden in the hold of a spaceship. Rings of Kether... That's the next one. That was decent, if forgettable. Um, hunting down smugglers. That felt like a proper mission. And it was the first science fiction book to have a plot that made more sense than the ravings of a pub drunk. Rebel Planet was almost 
fairly good. It had actual planets with distinct ecologies and atmospheres. It was okay. Robot Commando is my favourite of the science fiction titles, as the concept of piloting a giant mech that fights dinosaurs is a gloriously wacky B-movie concept that the design happily manages to deliver pretty well. Then we're right back to gibberish for Star Strider, which was badly designed and badly executed in equal parts, before Skylord comes along and hammers a great big fat juicy nail right into the coffin of science fiction books in fighting fantasy. I think the general low to middling quality of the science fiction books preceding it were probably instrumental in people staying away from this one. So good decision people who stayed away from this one. And I doubt anyone would have been looking forward to another space adventure after this monstrous flop of a title. It does raise the question, is there anything that makes science fiction less suitable for game books than fantasy? And I've mentioned this before, but I do think it's harder to write interactive fiction for characters who have more agency. Horror and fantasy trade in constrained options. There's a reason the phone is always discovered to be out of charge or unable to get a signal in a modern horror movie. They want to take away those safe, civilised options to force the character to deal with whatever menace is menacing them on its own terms. Once you have characters with their own spaceships and an entire galaxy to play with, you have to get creative to write around that. Now, if you look at something like the end of the first Star Wars film, that's a pretty good premise for a game book. You've got time pressure, you've got a constrained area, you've got a clear mission of rescuing Leia and escaping the Death Star. But if you go and look at Empire Strikes Back, the characters have become significantly more self-directed. They're choosing where to go and what to do. Luke chooses to go and train with Yoda and then chooses to abandon his training to head back to try and help his friends. And that's a much harder thing to write in the context of offering a player a handful of choices every paragraph. Futuristic technology is also harder to write than Swords and Shields. Everything you write just requires that bit of exposition and exposition is always less interesting than action. I quite liked the range of absurd gadgets that Skylord presented me with, but I did get very tired of being told how all the various gizmos functioned and which precise dimensions they were emanating into or out of. Now, obviously a fantasy book will need to explain magical items, but they're usually rare by design, which keeps the exposition under control. I think most of the science fiction books would have benefited from being licensed books set in an existing universe. A Star Wars book where you don't have to explain lightsabers, or a Star Trek book where your audience broadly understands the technology of ship-to-ship -ship combat, that frees up a lot more space for story. I don't think it was inevitable that science fiction books wouldn't work in fighting fantasy long term. If Starship Traveller had been fantastic, it would have sparked the imagination of creators in the same way that Citadel of Chaos and Forest of Doom sparked the imagination of creators. A few people did manage to do something interesting with it, but I personally think it's still an underdeveloped area for adventure game books, and I suspect the relative quality of the fighting fantasy efforts has a lot to answer for in the long-term trend. We did do a fairly entertaining space and time travel book called Falcon not so long ago, so there were people putting in the time and effort to try and give readers 
a genuinely good time in that kind of science fiction milieu. It's not impossible, it's just a little bit harder. Well, I've babbled on for more than enough time about this one, so I will raise a glass to the science fiction books of fighting fantasy taken from us too soon and bid you farewell. I've genuinely got no idea what I'm going to cover for the next bonus episode, but I will definitely find something. It'll be a surprise to me. It'll be a surprise to you. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with me, you can do so by emailing hjdoomretrofun, all one word, at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening to this significantly lengthy episode. Take care, and I'll see you soon.